of ancient Israel. Like nobody doesn't, he, he's a great ruler, a great king. He made some really dumb mistakes, but a really good king. Not too long after that, there are some terrible political conflicts that go on uh, that involve deceit and murder and war, and we thought our politics were bad. Uh, and actually, Israel splits into two kingdoms. There's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And the southern kingdom is the smaller of the two, and it's called Judah most of the time. Sometimes it's called other things, but it's mainly called Judah. And that's because one of the 12 tribes of of, um, Israel is called Judah, and that's the ones who are in the southern kingdom. And Ahaz, he's kind of the focus of our sermon this morning, is the king of Judah. Now, Ahaz is a man who trusts what he can see around him, what he can touch and what he can actually smell and taste more than he trusts God. I'll believe it when I see it. That's kind of his life motto, which is unfortunately kind of a poor way to approach God. Um, As I was looking into Ahaz, I found this book on my shelf this week. I've never read it. I don't think I even knew I had it. I don't know where it came from, Uh, but it's called Who's Who in the Bible. And somebody just wrote these really like cute little vignettes of different Bible characters. So I looked up Ahaz, and sure enough, he's in there. Uh, So what a blessing. Let me just read you. The way this person describes Ahaz is is wonderful. This will give you a sense for the kind of guy he is. Total depravity had a beloved disciple in Ahaz, Jotham's son. He was the meanest of all Judah's princes. No courage, no honor, no patriotism, energy, reverence, heart, mind, nor soul. When the cordon of his enemies began to encircle Jerusalem, he put his trust in everyone and everything but God. With never a thought of the honor of his people or his royal line, he went begging for help from Tilgath-Pileser, that's the king of the Assyrians. From that hour, his people were vassals, and he was a vassal king. He strangled the faith of his fathers, let religion die by inches. He offered his own son to Moloch. That's true, he sacrificed his own kid. He was the inspiration of the realm's superstition. He talked with ghosts, wizards, and soothsayers. At the temple gates were chariots and sacred white horses dedicated not to God but to the sun. He desecrated every stick of furniture in the temple. Lastly, he closed and locked the temple doors and ordered the ancient lamps put out. Lights out. God was gone. Vision was dead. The people perishing. Hezekiah might postpone it, but he could not stop it. Judah was doomed. How would you like for that to be your obituary? (laughs) That's Ahaz. So just a couple short generations after David, the great king of all of Israel, this unified kingdom, the kingdom splits, and a man like this is in power in the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, Judah is actually a pretty small, they're a small fries kingdom. They're not a big deal in the kind of the socio-political world. Like nobody really pays any attention to them. But they've got some problems. There's a lot of squabbling and, and, and geopolitical tension. There still is in that part of the world. And, and, and on one side of Judah, you've got the Assyrians. Now, the Assyrians, they're the world's superpower and they're ruthless. And so rightfully so, everybody's a little bit nervous about the Assyrians. On the other side of Judah, you have these other two smaller kingdoms. You don't have to remember these, but they're called the Ephraimites and the Aramites. 
And they're also nervous about the Assyrians. So these two other like small kingdoms form an alliance and make a plan to invade Judah because the more land and power they can consolidate, the better they think they'll be able to resist the superpower Assyrians. Make sense? I hope that's pretty clear. There's a lot. It took me a long time to figure all this out this week. What do you do when you're stuck between a rock and a hard place? You're going to be invaded by a couple smaller countries or you're going to be invaded by one global superpower. What do you do? That's the conundrum that Ahaz Ahaz finds himself in. And in that moment, God says, don't do anything. I will fight for you. It's kind of an odd thing. I mean, imagine... I hesitate to use this example, but I'll just try it anyway. Like, imagine our nation were about to go to war and somebody else were threatening us and God said, don't do anything. I'll fight for you. We'd think, yeah, right. It doesn't work that way. That's not how the world works. That's what Ahaz kind of comes, that's his conclusion. So he makes his own plan. He says, instead of waiting and doing nothing, I'm going to approach the Assyrians, the superpower. They're more powerful than these other little guys. And I'm going to cut a deal with them, a a peace treaty. And I'm sure it means we'll have to give up some power and we'll have to give up some rights. But it's better to be a servant state than to be a non-existent state. Better than them just flattening us. He completely forgets, or probably more accurately, he completely ignores the fact that God has told him, don't do anything. Let me fight for you. It's almost like, it's like a twist on, on the old saying, and God is saying, don't just do something. Sit there. Don't just do something. Sit there. If you're a good 21st century type A proactive get things done kind of person, this will drive you nuts. (laughs) Your back is against the wall. There's no way out except through. And you are told, just sit there. To you, that, that might even sound irresponsible. So what do you do? Now, this is a common theme throughout the Old Testament. In fact, I went through and counted. This isn't exhausted, but um, in Exodus, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, 2 Samuel, 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, Nehemiah, Psalms, Isaiah, and Zechariah, some of those more than once in those books, God says some version of this phrase, the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. So this is not a a one-off random thing that's coming out of nowhere. This is a consistent message that God has given to his people. His people who think they need to take up their swords. And God says, just chill out. When God has promised to fight your battle for you, can you be still? That's not just an abstract question. Now I'm asking you. I'm not asking you to imagine that, like, just you right here, right now, when God has promised to fight your battles for you, can you be still? That's what God is asking Ahaz here in Isaiah 7. 
In fact, he goes so far as to tell Ahaz, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. This is a do-or-die moment for you, Ahaz. Quick little detour. We'll come back to this, I promise. God doesn't always tell us to do nothing, okay? There, in fact, there are a lot of times. It's probably fair to say that more often than not, he calls us to practice an active faith than a passive faith, okay? So I'm not saying that God is always saying just sit around and do nothing, and that's, that's not what faith. The key word here is, is really faith. And faith is, is expressed in what we do, but it's not defined by what we do. In other words, there's sometimes that, that by doing something, we, demonstra- we can demonstrate a faith in God. That's a good question to ask. Does all the stuff I'm busy doing, all the religious stuff I'm busy doing, the church stuff, the spiritual stuff, the, the trying to figure out and make sense of and clean up my life, does that demonstrate a faith in God? In Ahaz's case, all of the stuff he did actually betrayed that he didn't think God would follow through on his promise. See, sometimes our faith demands that we're active. When God says, do something, care for the widows and for the poor and the orphans. When God says, give sacrificially and generously, when he says, consider others better than yourself, look not only to your own interests, but look to the interests of others. That's active faith. But sometimes, if God has promised to act, then faith insists, don't just do something, sit there. That's what God is telling Ahaz. He said, you can't possibly handle the Assyrians. It's way too big for you. They're way too strong for you. Let me take care of them for you. That gets us to the reading this morning. That's all the backstory. (laughs) Now we start the sermon. God actually doubles down in verse, if you look at verse 11, here's how he doubles down to Ahaz. He says, ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or the highest heights. He's saying, Ahaz, I promise to take care of you. I know you have a hard time believing this. So ask me for a sign, like a miracle. And I'll show you the miracle, and then you'll know that I really can make good on this promise. And what does Ahaz say? This is the key to the text. Verse 12, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. That may sound good and religious and noble, but look at the context. God said to Ahaz in verse 11, ask me for a sign. And Ahaz says in verse 12, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. On a surface level, this this sounds very good. This sounds religious. This sounds... um, Remember um, Matthew, I think it's Matthew 4, uh, Satan's, if you know your New Testament, Satan is tempting Jesus, and he says, he, he brings Jesus to the top of the temple, and he says, throw yourself off this temple. And, do, and the scriptures say that the angels will rescue you before you, you know, go splat on the ground. And it, the scripture says, and Jesus says what? Do you remember what? He says, the scriptures also say, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So isn't Ahaz just being like Jesus here? He's quoting the same scripture. Here's the problem. 
God had just said, Ahaz, ask me for a sign. A sign that proves that I will come through for you. But Ahaz doesn't want to ask God for a sign because he doesn't believe that God will follow through. Maybe he doesn't believe God can follow through. I don't know if he thinks God is is ignorant or apathetic or, or impotent or what, but somehow he doesn't think that God will. The long and short of it is this. Ahaz does not trust God to do what God has promised to do. And so he says, I'm going to have to figure things out myself. In this case, I'm going to have to form a political alliance with the Assyrians to keep them from crushing us. Now, Ahaz is quoting scripture there. In Deuteronomy 6, it says, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. So what's wrong with that? Well, that's just the first part of that verse. Deuteronomy 6.16 says, Do not put the Lord to your God to the test as you did at Massah. You can read all about Massah in Exodus 17. God had just set the Israelites free miraculously from slavery in Egypt. He led them through the wilderness, and a few days later they get thirsty, and they're in the desert, and they can't find water, and they start complaining They start bickering and they start quarreling. In fact, Massah means to quarrel in Hebrew. It's the place where God's people started really arguing with God and saying, you led us out of slavery in Egypt only to die in the wilderness? Don't you care about us, God? As if God didn't know their problems or didn't care about their problems. So when God says, do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massah, he's not saying, don't ever do this, and I'm going to try a little gotcha moment, a little pop quiz and say, ask me for a sign, and I hope you remember what it says in Deuteronomy 6. No, he's saying, don't test my patience by accusing me of not caring, by accusing me of not being able to do what I promised to do. It's a bitter irony that Ahaz uses this scripture in the exact wrong way. (laughs) He thinks thinks he's savvier than he is. Right? You You can cloak your unbelief in religious language, and you can sound really good to some of the people around you. You use all the right words, use all the right phrases, Lord willing, God bless, right? And it sounds very good and it sounds very religious, but in reality, if your heart is not in a place where it trusts God to do what he says he'll do, then those words are empty. And in fact, it's not just about faith. It's about love. Because remember, Love is an action primarily more than it's a feeling. So when God asks Ahaz to to ask him for a sign, when he says, trust me by not going and and doing anything dumb, he's saying, "I I know you feel differently, but do you love me enough to show your love by actions and not just by your feelings? And remember, love means you're willing to do something foolish and unreasonable on behalf of the person whom you love. 
A religious-sounding veneer can look impressive. It can fool a lot of people. It doesn't fool God, and it betrays very often a heart that's not filled with love. So Ahaz goes ahead, and he makes the alliance with the Assyrians. He actually does it. And before long, the Assyrians just crush Israel. The very thing that Ahaz thought would save Israel strangled it. Not just the alliance, but his savvy and his cleverness. You see, he thought he was savvy and clever and strategic enough that he could get out of this mess. And instead, his savvy and his cleverness crushed his kingdom. Now, here's the part I'm not, I'm still not, I'm still kind of wrestling with this. I'm still not totally sure I understand it, And this is when we get to the Christmas part because I know it's Advent and we're leading up to Christmas. God says to Ahaz, ask me for a sign, ask me for a guarantee, a proof that I'll save you. And Ahaz says, no. And then in verse 14, God says, okay, I'll give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and give birth to a son and we'll call him Emmanuel. Now there are other places in Scripture and even in Isaiah where God refers to Israel, his people, as a woman. And and right before this in Isaiah 6, God had used a different image to say the same thing, that Israel will be cut down like a tree, but there will grow up um, kind of a little shoot from the stump. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. So so in that, like it makes, in this sense, it's most likely that that the young woman or the virgin refers to Israel and and God is saying, there's even, even though you disobey me and even though you make an utter mockery of me and ruin your kingdom, the virgin will have a child. The, there will be a small, faithful remnant of followers who stick it out. And you'll call him Emmanuel, which is a Hebrew word. It means God is with us. I'll be with them. In other words, even though it looks completely bleak and even though you ruin everything, I, I won't give up on you completely. And, and that part I get. That part kind of makes sense to me. Here's, here's what I wrestle with at a conceptual level. Why does God stick with Israel? When, when Ahaz went his own way instead of going God's way, when Israel went her own way, their own way, instead of going God's way, When you and I go our own way instead of God's way, why does God stick with us? If I were God, and by the way, it's a really good thing I'm not. (laughs) If I were God, I'd say, fine, go. I'll find someone else. And God very well could have. God very well could have said, Israel, Ahaz, you just keep walking away from me and you keep disobeying me and you keep rejecting me and you keep thinking you know what's better than me. You keep not loving me. Fine, go. I'll find someone else. There were plenty of other people in the world that God could have taken to be his his people, the chosen people, 2.0. But he doesn't. Why? When you and I refuse to follow God and when we keep thinking we know better than God and when we keep going our own way, why does God stick with us? 
I don't get it. Like, this, this troubles me, and I hope to some degree it troubles you. Why does God stick with you? I'll tell you why. Because God is love. And love is primarily an action more than it's a feeling. And because love often does foolish and unreasonable things. You see? In Ahaz's case, here's how it looks. Ahaz rejected God. Ahaz, the king of Judah. That's an important detail. I didn't bring it up for nothing. Because centuries and centuries and centuries ago, God had promised, I will save my people through Judah, the line of Judah. So when the king of Judah puts on airs and obviously doesn't have a clue and doesn't much care about the God he claims to serve, what does God do? God loves anyway because God is love. You see? Even when God's chosen people reject him and say, I'm fine on my own. Thank you very much. Instead of finding a new lover, God says, I'll send you a sign. I'm not finished with you yet. And when you and I, do you see the connection, by the way? We, we tend to think that we're blameless and innocent. You and I are really Ahaz in this story. When you and I think we know better than God, and when God tells us to, to wait and we don't, or he tells us to do something and we wait, and then he says, ask me for a sign, and we think we're being so holy by saying, oh, no, I don't know, no, 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 I'm all set, thank you. What does he do? He says, I'll send you a sign. The virgin will conceive and will have a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, God the Son himself is not just God's fulfillment of his promise to Israel to never leave them. He's the proof He's the sign that God loves you, and no matter what you do, Christian, he will not leave you. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and we'll call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. I've said this a lot lately. I love this phrase. One of our friends, Will Goff, who's preached here, says, God with skin on. How do you get much more with us than God stepping down from his throne in heaven and putting skin on to live with us, to know our sufferings, to know the brokenness that it means to be human? And finally, to pay the price, the consequence you see, just like Ahaz thought he could get by on his cleverness and savviness and it ended up crushing him instead, we think we can get by on our cleverness and savviness and our own effort just crushes us. And God says, you know what? I'm still not done with you. I will send my son who will bear the crushing weight of your sin to prove to you that I love you. Why? Because love is primarily an action, not a feeling. 
I'm going out on a limb here, but I think it's probably a safe bet that, that Jesus didn't feel like doing what he did for us at times. But his action proved it. And because love often does foolish and unreasonable things, like giving your life for somebody even when they don't always reciprocate. God sent his son, born of a virgin, and rescued the very people who turned their backs on him. (laughs) It's beautiful. (laughs) It's amazing. It's foolish. It's completely unreasonable. It makes no sense at all except when we realize that this is God and God is love. This is love, friends. This is love. You and I thought we didn't need a sign. We thought we could figure it out on our own. God has insisted, no, I'll give you a sign. (laughs) It's like the most loving trash talk you can imagine. I'll give you a sign. It should have cost us, but it cost him. He took the cost on himself. In fact, he took the cost on himself because he knew we could never repay it. He says, it will cost me everything, but I will gladly pay that price for you. Friends, that's love. That's love. That is the God who is love. When we think about Christmas and we think about love and we think about Jesus, it's not just the sweet, sappy, sentimental love of a little newborn baby. And, and that's there and it's beautiful and we've got a newborn and we, like, we love it. And, but friends, it's so much deeper than that. It's so much deeper than that. It's a God who said, you may turn your back on me, but I will never turn my back on you. Let's pray. Oh, Lord. Thank you that you never turn your back on us. Even when we turn and run and run and run and run, you're pursuing us. And in that moment when we just start to turn, even when we thought we were too far gone, you are welcoming us with, <laughs> with an impossible love eager to welcome us back, not telling us we should be ashamed of ourselves, not telling us we've got a debt to repay. No, because you've already paid the debt. Lord, teach us, teach us what it means to receive your love. And fill us with it so much that, that you would also teach us what it means to, to show your love. Make us so full of your love that it would just spill out from our lives, that it would ooze out of our pores so that a broken and hurting world, even the world around us, would know the love of Christ through us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.